Thank you, guys. I, I want to commend, by the way, an al- the, the album that that song came off of to you. Uh, is a guy named Wendell Kimbrough. He lives in Alabama. He's a s- singer, a songwriter, a Christian, writing songs and hymns for the church to sing. And there's an album. I think the name of the album is something like The Psalms We Sing. Do you remember, Caleb? You don't remember. The Psalms We Sing. Okay. About a year or so ago, I came across Wendell Kimbrough. I started listening. I'm like, oh, this stuff is great. I went and found him on Twitter, and it says, Fred Sanders follows him. I'm like, Fred, you never told me. He's not even here. He usually sits over there, but he, he was holding out on me. But I want to pass along to you. The album is mostly um, kind of a resetting of many of the psalms um, so that we can sing them. This one, though, was sort of taking the, the truth of uh, Paul's letter where he says we have this eternal weight of glory um, that is coming ahead uh, and writes this song like a psalm. But could you, Jonathan could you, Wheeler, could you put up the slide for the verse that says all, uh, all our pain is real? and pressing. Man, this psalm, the song is so much like the psalms because it, at the same time is very honest. This is the sort of thing that we should sing out loud in this room that our pain is not just a, a mirage. Um, it's not just, you know, in our heads. Our pain is real and pressing. That's not the verse. Our pain is real and pressing. Where is that one? That's it. Where our faith is thin and weak. So real pressing pain, faith thin and weak, but it doesn't just leave us there. It then re-anchors us to our hope. Our hope is set on Jesus. And I love the line near the end of that that imagines this day in glory where it says this, "We, we will hear our anguished stories sung as victory songs of grace. I don't know all of them, but I know a lot of the anguished stories in this room right now, many of them any of you that I know. We, we, this room is full of some anguished stories and some stories that we are not sure how this is going to turn out. How can this possibly ever be sung as a victory song of grace? But we have enough evidence through the history of the church and in the Bible of God turning anguished songs. I mean, the cross uh, above all stories, God turning Jesus' death on the cross into our victory song of grace. And so if God can do that, he can do, uh, do this with our anguish stories. And I love imagining back on these things in light of this eternal weight of glory and seeing and praising Jesus for how he worked. Thank you, Jonathan, for putting that slide up there. It's like the reflection service to end all reflection services one day, Right? And that's what our reflection services are at Grace, pausing to look back and recognize how is God working out, advancing the gospel in us by sanctifying us and through us as his church on mission. And how do we stop and we testify, God, you are turning our anguished stories into victory songs of grace, even as we only see in part. That's what Paul was doing in our passage last week. When he says to them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, he's retelling his anguished story as a victory song of grace, and he's helping them see it. That's what he was doing. We don't have to wait till glory to do this. We can do this for one another 
I want to, before we just dive into this passage, I want to loop back to Jackson's sermon last week. For me, I felt like that was one of the more important sermons for grace that we've had in a while. That's not discounting other sermons, but that passage last week and, and the questions that Jackson posed to us as a church, I think are very important. I want us to not stop praying that sermon over our chains. He talked about how just as Paul was in chains, but he was able to see how God was not only using but even choosing his chains as a means of advancing the gospel and he turned that to us and he just said we, we all have chains stuff that we feel um, we can't get rid of relationships we can't get out of relationships that are a drag for us um, or bring anxiety responsibilities that are on our shoulders that we can't get rid of that we wish we could that are burdensome that are unpleasant Many of you might have jobs that feel like drudgery or uh, an office environment and coworkers that are just um, oppressive. Hostility maybe that you face and conflict in your family because of the name of Jesus that you confess and others don't. Disability, disease. And Jackson said, what if we, because of our gospel hope, flip the script and said, okay, God has chained me these things so that if I lean into these with prayer and clinging to faith and with the help of the body of Christ, lean into these and say, God, you want to turn this lead into gold and I want to be part of it. What might God do in our church? It's an important message. In fact, I would love it if in April, I think April 7th is our reflection service, if some of the reflections we could hear would be some of you standing and saying, Grace, I want you to know that what's happened to me in the first three months of this year, or what's been happening to me this year is really serving to advance the gospel in these ways. How encouraged we would be in our anguished stories. So let's be praying that sermon and that passage over our lives for one another. Can we? Anyway, so that's why Paul was rejoicing is that he was seeing glimpses of God um, making gold out of the lead of his chains But he's not done rejoicing. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. In fact, if you noticed, you know, by the way, you know the verse numbers in your Bible aren't uh, divinely uh, ordained. Those were put in later to help us all know where we're talking about and say, yeah, let's go to verse 4. And sometimes those verse numbers breaks are kind of in weird places. So last week we finished at 18, the first half of verse 18, Philippians 1, 18a, where Paul recounting these recent events and his present circumstances is able to see I'm rejoicing in gospel advancing right now in my chains. In that I rejoice, he says. And we're going to pick up here where Jackson left off because Paul now, as he turns to what's looming in his immediate future, he's also able to continue rejoicing. So that's what this morning's text is. Why is Paul continuing to rejoice? He says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know, let's read it, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Well, look at verse 21. I think verse 21 is the backbone of this little section. It's the backbone of these reasons that Paul is going to rejoice moving forward in what lies ahead. It's both the foundation for how he expects to face his impending trial, no matter how that goes, but it's also the backbone and the foundation of the selfless attitude and way he is thinking about whatever remaining years God might give him. At the, the, the foundation of this is this conviction Paul has that really is the great win-win of our gospel hope. It's that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a win-win. If I am in Christ and my future is secure in him, if I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's gain. A couple of weeks ago, as Eric was preaching the, the opening passage of Philippians and the prayer, he said, oh, if we could just get this church, I think everything would fall into place. I feel that way about verse 21 here. If we re- it really becomes our conviction that to live is Christ and die is gain, it's a game changer. I think maybe the most practically helpful words in verse 21 are to me. Because otherwise, it's just truths out there. But when Paul says, to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain, what he's saying is, I have become convinced of this. That truth has now uh, been convincing to me such that it has renewed my mind and it is transforming the way I look at life and live my life. To me, to live as Christ. And so this morning, if that is not your conviction, one of my prayers is that you leave here being able to say, no, to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we see in Paul's rejoicing at his immediate future two ways that that gospel hope is producing fruit, two ways that to live as Christ and to die as gain is transforming him. We see it in fearlessness in 18 through 20, and we see it in selflessness in 24 through 26. So I sort of want to take this passage apart from the middle out. I want to look at verses 21 through 23 for a minute and really get what does it mean to live as Christ and to die as gain? Why are those our win-win of our gospel hope? And then back up to look at how that produced fearlessness in Paul as he faced an impending trial and how it produced selflessness in in regards to his relationship with the church at Philippi. So let me pray and and then we'll do that. God, Romans 12, I believe, says that we're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And God, this truth, to live as Christ and to die is gain, is the sort of truth that if it will renew our minds and, and flip the script of the way that we see life and the hope that we live for, it will transform us. in a a way that does not conform to this world but resists and actually shines in relief and contrast to the surrounding world. And I pray that you would renew our minds this morning as a church um, using this beautiful 
win-win truth that to live is Christ, to die is gain, Lord. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, so look at verses 21 through 23. This is the, the win-win of the gospel hope. To, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We'll start with the dying part. For Paul, he says, to me, to die is gain. And since Paul is saying this, and he's saying to me, let's remember, he doesn't just mean passing peacefully in my sleep would be gain. He means possible execution, the thumbs down of the Caesar that could result in beheading or crucifixion or the Colosseum or whatever at that time it would have been. Paul is also able to say even that to me because of the gospel is gain. To die is gain. Look at verse 23. Here's why it is gain. He says, because death means to depart and be with Christ. That's why it's gain. He sees dying as both departing something that he would, he's longing to be free of and also to be with Christ. First, he says to depart. Just think for a minute of all that Paul would have been desperate to um, depart from. I mean, he's, he's in prison. He's chained to another guard on rotation all the time. I can't imagine that the, you know, the food is good. I can't imagine it's a pleasant circumstance. And there's this anxiousness of what's to come. That's his present. But let's think about how he got here. Since Jesus saved him on the road to Damascus and knocked him off his horse and said, I have plans for you, Paul. And they're glorious plans, but they're going to include suffering. It's going to be a hard road. Paul has had a tough go of things, hasn't he? Just listen to this. In 2 Corinthians, talking to some prideful Christians, tr help, trying to help put them in his place. He's not trying to boast in himself, but by contrast, listen to what Paul said he'd endured for the sake of the gospel. He says, I have got endured far greater labors, far more imprisonments, plural, with countless beatings, so many beatings that he, he lost count. Often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, his own people, the 40 lashes less one, 39 lashes with this, these, these whips that were designed to just tear your, your back apart. He said, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was actually adrift at sea on frequent journeys Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city. Are you seeing a theme? Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night. Keeps going, hold on. In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. <laughs> That's humbling because you get to the end of that list and you couldn't fault the guy if the, the, first, the biggest thing on his mind is himself, right? But he says on top of all that, it's the weight of all these churches I feel like a spiritual father to that I care about what's happening there and I want to make sure they, they, their progress and joy in the faith continues. Oh yeah, and he got bit by a poisonous snake one time. You can imagine at this point in prison the longing to depart, right? For peace and freedom from pain. But it's more than departing from Paul. To die is not just escape of pain, 
but it's really to depart and be with Christ. For Paul, it's not escape, it's to be home, to go home to be with Christ. In fact, uh, when Paul thought of heaven, I think first and foremost was not what he was going to be rid of, but that he would see Jesus face to face. The one that even as an old man, he couldn't understand why he would have saved him and given his life for him. And Paul imagined, I'm going to see him one day, face to face. You know, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Being with Jesus, Paul saw, that is finally my soul being at rest and at home. And so, You can see why he said so. To die is gain. The worst thing that Caesar can do to me, he realized, was speed up my homecoming. So on one hand, the win of to die is gain. On the other hand, he says, to live is Christ. What does that mean? Well, look at verse 22. Puts it pretty simply. To live. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, if God gives me some more time on earth, that means fruitful labor for me. That's what that means. Extra time means fruitful labor for me. More time to pour myself out, to spend and be spent for the sake of other people hearing about Christ, trusting Christ, growing in Christ, making it to the finish line with Christ. That's what more years means for me. So we need to ask ourselves, what what do more years of life mean for you? Some of you are young in this room. You might think, God might give you 70 more years. I'm 47 now. Sobering when I start thinking, (laughs) realistically, how many more years might the Lord give me? 40 more years? What if the Lord gave you 20 more years? What if God gave you five more years? Or one? How might you finish that sentence? If I had one more year that the Lord gave me, you know what that means? That would mean fill in the blank. Probably ashamed to say it, but as Americans, we probably tend to think it like a bucket list, right? Whatever time remaining, if that that time is starting to get short, what is the list of things, places I want to go, things I want to experience, people I want to see one more time? I got to pack in as many things in my bucket list before that time. But that is not an eternal perspective way of thinking, is it? It's an Ecclesiastes way of thinking, that imagines that, that when my life is over, when I die, that's it. So I've got to pack it all in now, which is a, an atheistic worldview. It's, it's a, v- a worldview without a God in the picture and an eternal future. And that's not us, Christians. But the sad thing is, even as Christians, I think, we can sort of adopt that worldview, especially living in a comfortable, easy place like the United States, where we can sort of see uh, Philippians 121 flipped on its head. In other words, to live is gain and then to die is Christ, right? To live, however many years God gives me, is time to gain, gain, gain and and enjoy and enjoy and enjoy and bonus. And then I get to depart and be with Christ. I was thinking of sort of an analogy. I was thinking of Christmas cookies. I was thinking of the kind of Christmas cookies you cut out with cookie cutters. Bear with me here. You know, you roll it out like sugar cookies and you roll out the dough. Some of you guys in the room are looking at me like you've never done this. You're not even sure how it happens. They just show up at Christmas and you eat them. Anyway, you roll out the dough and you got your cookie cutters. And the plan is, if you're, if you're good at it, to get that cookie cutter and leave the margins as little as possible so you can get it, squeeze as many cookies. Caleb Parker made sugar cookies this year, some good ones. You know what I'm talking about. 
and you try to get as many in there and leave as little margin so you get the most cookies, right? All right, here's the question. In that analogy, which do you see as the cookies? Your bucket list or fruitful labor for Christ? If we're honest, it's probably the bucket list. I want to get as many of these things in that I, I want to enjoy and I don't want to miss out on. Jesus, don't come back yet because I got more cookies here. And, and the margin, the little trimmings around the edge, that's, I'll, I'll give those for eternal uh, eternal purposes. I'll give that to the Lord. But that's not the way Paul saw it. For Paul, fruitful labor was the cookies. Spending his life so that others could be with Jesus forever, those were the cookies. He has like an unbucket list. It's like a sanctified bucket list. Rather than what all can I enjoy before the end comes, it's how much more fruitful labor, how else could I be used by the Lord? Jesus, my, who I'm a servant to, he said at the opening verse of this letter. Maybe this week we need, you need to sit down and think, what would an unbucket list look like for me? I don't know how many years the Lord is going to give me, but Lord, for however many years you give me, rather than what things do I still want to squeeze in and not miss, what are those things for which I want to live and spend myself and be spent? Who are those people right now that you have put in my life, Lord, that right now I want to labor fruitfully for by your power of your spirit? So that's this, this dilemma. Paul says it's a win-win. To die is Christ, to, or to gain, to live is Christ. And then he says one of the most surprising things to me at least. He says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He actually says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He's in prison. On one hand, it's escaping this and being in the presence of Jesus forever. On the other hand, kind of scratching it out for a few more years here in prison or maybe elsewhere with more danger, 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 and fruitful labor. How is that even a <laughs> close? It made me think, back in 2012, I think it was, I had finally started running because I was in terrible shape and I needed to do something. And Scott Rosencrans encouraged me to sign up for a half marathon. And at first I laughed and then I'm like, okay, we'll try it. And I remember some people, as I was training, said, oh, your first half marathon, as soon as you're done with that, you're going to want to run a full marathon. That was not my experience. <laughs> Honestly, it, was, it still isn't. Now, I've, I, run, I ran a second one with my brother a couple of years ago, half, and there's nothing in me that wants to run twice that many miles. But... <laughs> I remember at the Orange County one, Nate Hatch ran the full marathon the same year that we ran the half. So I'm, you're going to come up in the story in just a second. So, so anyway, so we get finally, I get, because Scott ran faster than me. So I finally, I get to the 13-mile mark. And if you know, that means I have 0.1 miles to go, a tenth of a mile left to finish the half. And at that point on the course, there was this giant cone with two arrows, like a sign, left finish line, 0.1 mile right? Took you all the way basically back around on the same loop I just run to do another 13.2 miles. And I was so exhausted. And as I got up and I saw that sign, I um, tried to imagine in my mind for a second, thinking of people who said, oh, you're going to want to do a half. I tried to imagine right now, if I had to turn right, it was just like the most depressing thought. I was like, there's no, I was not hard pressed between the two, right? I just wanted finish line right there. And then I imagined poor Nate was going to have to hit that sign and turn left. And he hadn't trained enough and he paid for it, didn't you? <laughs> anyway, but, but here's Paul and he's like, finish line, depart with, be with Christ or 13.1 miles maybe more. And he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. 
for him, that, that shouldn't make us go, what? It should elevate for us how he viewed fruitful labor and the joy he found in it, even though it was hard, was enough that he said, I'm hard-pressed. This is great. It's hard, but this is good. This, there's joy in this. And he was really, it was a tough decision for him, even though, again, he said, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Would you say you're hard-pressed between those two options? <clears throat> To live as Christ, to die as gain. That's the backbone of this section. And we want that conviction to be our conviction. Look what it produced in Paul's life. In 18 through 20, we see it produce fearlessness. We see this gospel hope leads him to courageously seek to honor Christ in his body, whether he lives or dies. Honor Christ with his body, what he says, how he stands, how he faces what's ahead, honoring Christ, whether he lives or whether he dies. Why does Paul say he continues to rejoice? Verse 9, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. What's this? Well, it's standing before Caesar, I think. Back in Acts, the reason he's in Rome in the first place is he'd been arrested and then he was languishing in prison and it was taking a long time. Finally, he exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And the governor said, all right, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you will go. And he finally gets shipped all the way up to Rome. And so here now, I think when he says, I know this will turn out now as always, I think the now is implying this is, this is impending. He knows that soon he's about to stand before the most powerful man in the empire whose thumb going up or thumb going down can either end in execution or freedom. So this is what he has in mind. I know that this, what I'm about to face, who I'm about to stand before, will turn out for my deliverance. So what does he mean by deliverance? Does he just mean, I know that this is going to end up with uh, being released from prison? Because we might think that. Look at verse 25. He seems to have a, a, a strong feeling here, verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith. And th th he imagines that he thinks he's going to come to them again and see them again face to face. So we, we might think, well, does he just mean I think this is going to turn out, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance from prison? But I don't think that's what he means right here. Even though I think he has a hunch for some other reasons we're going to get to in a minute, Right here, I think he has something different in mind. As he's about to stand before Caesar, he's saying, I know that this is going to turn out for my deliverance. And here's why I know it's, Paul doesn't mean deliverance from prison. Verse 20, he says, this turning out for deliverance is going to happen whether I live or whether I die. This thing I know will happen, my deliverance, is going to happen if I am executed or if I'm set free from prison. The word actually is the word salvation. This will turn out for my salvation. In fact, every other time in the New Testament Paul uses this word, it's with the theological idea of either our justification, how we are saved as we come to Christ, or our sanctification, God is working that out in us as we grow in Christ, or one day when it's finally brought to a completion and we're glorified. But every other time, this word means salvation. Now, it doesn't prove that he means that here, I think it does when he says that this is going to happen whether I live or I die. Even if I don't get out of this prison and my head's taken off, this will turn out for my salvation. So in what sense does he see this as turning out for his salvation? Well, let me think back to verse 17 and 18. 
you remember there's these people who see the opportunity of Paul being in prison as a chance to exalt themselves? They're, they're preaching Christ now out of selfish ambition and rivalry and envy. And not only does it say they're trying to make a name for themselves, but they also, Paul says in verse 17, are thinking to afflict Paul in his imprisonment. They want Paul in his imprisonment this to bug him. The fact that their ministry outside the walls of the prison is succeeding and people are responding. Meanwhile, he's in chains in there and his God is not freeing him even though he's innocent. And I think that they want that to eat at Paul. I think that they want him to, th- to, to, to begin thinking, does that mean that God's put his thumb up, thumbs up over their ministry and I'm just sitting here in prison with God's divine thumbs down over me? Has God abandoned me? Is Christ really with me? They want to afflict him. They want that to eat away at him, discourage him, and maybe even cause him to just throw in the towel and abandon Christ. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews, I think that has a similar sort of an exhortation. It encourages believers who had already, to some measure, suffered for the sake of Christ. They'd actually already faced persecution and walked through it honoring Christ with their body. But listen to what the author of Hebrews says to these believers. He says, this is chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. So yet a little while, don't give up. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't quit. He says, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But then more hopefully, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What is the author saying? He's saying that the pressure of suffering for Jesus' sake could lead a professing Christian to finally throw away their confidence and to shrink back. And so he's encouraging them, don't shrink back. Continue, be resolved, honor Christ in your body, whether by life or by death, I think. Satan would love, there's a line in A Mighty Fortress, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. And Paul, even though he's, he's seen so many things threaten to undo him, and Christ has stood with him and held him fast, and here he is in prison, he doesn't take that for granted, and he still says, I wanna, I wanna cross the finish line. I don't want to fumble my faith on the one-yard line and and say, forget it, I've been wrong. I want to finish with faith. And and he's convinced that that is going to be the outcome of standing before Caesar and waiting for execution or freedom. Have you ever found yourself playing the what-if game where you just imagine all the horrible things that might happen in your future, the, the, the things you're most afraid would happen, that you wonder, if that happened, would I throw in the towel? as far as my faith is concerned, would that cause me to just shrink back in confidence? What measure of persecution or what measure of suffering um, in your life might do that? What, how could I be convinced like Paul is and say, I know that this too will turn out for my deliverance, that God will use this to bring me through and help me to, to finish well and be of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Well, Paul tells us where this conviction comes from. First of all, here's what it looks like. Verse 20, he says, um, this is how, in the sense that he knows it. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
So he says, first, I will not be ashamed. I'm not going to shrink back. I won't fumble the ball of my faith. And he says, I'm going to face this with full courage. I'm going to honor Christ in my body. Either way, this is going to go. Now, I want to qualify again. Full courage. Let's not think of that as stoic indifference and nothing hurts me. Superhero sort of. No, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane ought to remind us that full courage doesn't have to look like that, right? Jesus set his face to the cross with full courage, but that didn't mean it wasn't with tears and anguish and trembling and real pain. And I don't think Paul is under any false ideas about this as well, that full courage is going to be hard. But then he says, here, here's the ground of this, this conviction, with full courage, now as always. It's grounded in, in God's past faithfulness to him, in Christ's track record of standing with him, right? Now, as always, in all those other dangers, Christ has stood with me. The Spirit of Christ has supplied what I needed and helped me. And he he says, now, as always, I'm confident that still Christ will uphold me one more time. And look back to verse 19. Why is he so confident? These two things, he says, I know that through your prayers, through your prayers, he says to this church, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, I'll face this with full courage and honor Christ with my body. I'm humbled by that because you'd think after all that track record of Paul, by now he might say, I think I, think I got this one. <laughs> I mean, five times, the 39 lashes, and all that stuff, and, and I'm still standing here. I, I think I'm good from here. But even here, he's, he, he says, no, no, no. If it's not for the Spirit of Christ standing with me and filling me in response to the prayers of the saints for me, I, I have no confidence. But because I know that's happening and who the Spirit of Christ is with me, I can, I can face this with full confidence. Do we think about the, rela- the role of our prayer in the lives of one another to persevere in faith, facing really hard stuff, as this significant? Paul didn't just say, I know with the help of the Spirit of Christ. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Do we pray for one another with that sort of urgency and those sort of prayers? Do you pray for those in your grace group beyond just the grocery list of what's happening this week and, you know, pray for my test and pray for my, those are fine, pray, you know, daily bread sorts of prayers. But do we feel an urgency to pray for those in our grace group, to pray for our children, to pray for the elders at Grace and the grace group shepherds at Grace? Prayers like this, Lord, fill them with the spirit of Christ so that they might stand firm, be bold, walk wisely, not shrink back, be fearless, whatever life brings. That's why house of prayer. House of prayer is not just merely, hey, once a, once a month, let's together, get together and sort of share our prayer list. And th- This is with the sense of urgency. We want to pray that the spirit of Christ would stand with this church for whatever we're going to face together. That's why we say, please, you all come through the prayer and the spirit of Christ. And be reminded, here's Paul, as he imagines the spirit of Christ standing with him. Christ is the one who didn't just stand before Caesar um, and and get life or death. He stood, put himself between us and a holy God at the cross, bearing the full guilt of our sin and enduring the wrath of God. That was the thing that Jesus looked forward and courageously with his body in his death honored God the Father by doing. So I think Paul imagines as the, that Christ, the spirit of Christ, he is standing with me as I stand before Caesar. 
Well, this is nothing. All Caesar can do is send me to Jesus sooner. And Christ is standing with me. So I don't know what you're looking down the barrel of in your life right now that, you, that you're afraid of. But through the prayers of the church and the spirit of Jesus Christ, you can have a confidence this will turn out for your salvation. This will head toward the finish line. So to produce in Paul can produce this in us. But also produces selflessness, this gospel hope. Look at verses 24 through 26. It produces selflessness. In Paul, it produces this willingness to delay his greater gain for the greater need of others. That's essentially what happens here. As he considers this, you know, this, what he's hard-pressed between the two, notice how he reasons. Verse 24, he recognizes that, he, I think at this time, at this moment, my great gain of departing and be with Christ would be your loss, Philippian church. Look what he says. He says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So he says, my desire is to, to depart and be with Christ, my desire. But it seems more necessary that I remain here with you all. Uh, so on your account, me sticking around a while longer is, is more important. And I don't, know, he doesn't, I don't know how he knows this or what's convinced him. Maybe it's the things that he's writing this letter about, concerns he has about persecution that's heating up for them and disunity that's beginning to arise in the church. But he has this sense that my greater gain right now would be a loss for you. And so in verse 25, you see there's this willingness to yield and postpone his great gain for their great need. He says, so convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and I'll continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And we know he's not gritting his teeth over this because he says he's really hard-pressed between these two. He sees this as fruitful labor. And ultimately, he prefers, uh, he, he puts his preferences second to their progress in the faith because it's going to re- result in the, the glory of Jesus. Look at verse 26. He imagines as, as the Lord would give him freedom and a chance to return, he says, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Not in me, but in me you can glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul imagines the various ways that Jesus would be magnified and honored in his body through his life if God sent him back to the Philippians and gave him some more time. I think it would magnify Jesus as the one who stood with Paul and helped him face Caesar unashamed as they hear testimony about that, of Christ standing with Paul. It would magnify Christ um, in, in that Paul would be an answer to their prayers and that God would continue to use him as a conduit of Jesus' uh, help in their progress in the faith. And I think that it would magnify Christ because Paul would be reflecting and looking like Christ. Where did Paul learn and, and grow a heart and a desire to put his his great gain aside for the sake of someone else's great need. Well, Jesus, I don't want to steal Rob Price's thunder. In two Sundays, we're going to be in chapter two, the first 11 verses Rob's going to preach, and we're going to see how this is what's made Paul like this. He's been saved by the one, God the Son, who set aside his glory, left his throne and his place at the right hand of God to become a man and humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where Paul has learned to love like this. That's what has made Paul selfless. Grace, it doesn't get much more Christ-like than this and more practical. 
It doesn't have to be in grandiose ways, but daily ways as we look at those immediately in our life that God has, has given us opportunity and we look at the needs around us and we pray, Lord, help me to place my gain a second and yield that to the greater gain of this person or these people. We need to pray this for ourselves. So um, we need to pray. It's, it's time for us to pray. Uh, maybe a few ways that you might need to pray this morning. Maybe you need to pray something like this. Lord, I want to be able to say to, to me to live as Christ and to die as gain, but it's not. That's not my conviction right now. I'm not sure about this. And you can pray, Lord, God, if you're real, Jesus, if you're real, if this is true, that um, in you, trusting in you, my life can be Christ and death can be gain, convince me, Lord, show me, Jesus, that this is the truth and help me to, to believe it. Maybe you need to pray about fearlessness, that you are not fearless, uh, that you shrink back. You're ashamed in, in public and in your family and in your workplace and in different ways um, to, to boldly honor Christ in your body, in your life. You need to pray, Lord, make me fearless. Jesus, stand by me and help me honor you with my life. Maybe you need to pray about the needs that are around you. You say something like this, Lord, I see the needs of others you put around me in my life, but honestly, I struggle to see them as more important than my own. My heart doesn't want to, to put be second. And say, Lord, help me. Help me to be glad to be second. Because Jesus, you were glad to put yourself second to raise me up. Let's pray. Take a couple of minutes, or however you need to turn this sermon into prayer, and then we'll close with a hymn.